my name is Maddie B, and this is an episode of There's Too Much to Think. Um, a little bit of backstory about today's episode. I originally wanted it to be um, both talking about the crimes that happened on this property as well as um, the hauntings that happened at this property because, you know, we all know something that went down at a place like this is one that you know, leaves a a lot of bad vibes. So I wanted to do uh, the hauntings and stuff, but then I got to like page seven and I was like, my voice needs a break. So um, that's why you'll see part one. This is my my first ever dual um, episode, Um, but you'll see part one and then next week. So this week I'm gonna be talking about the crimes and the serial killer and then next week i'm going to be talking about the hauntings that happened at the place so with that let's get into um this episode of there's too much to think um i want to start this off with um a you know big old warning um today we're going to be talking about the serial killer herb Baumeister. and for those who don't know herb Baumeister um killed a lot of queer um queer and gay men and in the 90s and you know that's a trigger warning just for like me as well as um you know anybody else because i am part of the community i'm the b in lgbt um and i know that hearing a lot about you know repetitive things in the media um about us dying for simply just existing and being murdered for simply just existing uh can take a toll so i just wanted to get that right out of the bat This does have a lot of LGBTQ victims, um, so I just wanted to get that out of the way. Um, Also, I will be talking about suicide, um, strangulation, and autoerotic asphyxiation. So, if none of those things are anything that you can handle right now, then I suggest you wait till next week's episode where I talk more about the spooky aspect rather than something as up close and personal like this case is. So with that, let's dive into a little bit about Herb Baumeister. Alright, so here is where I talk about his childhood as well as what he did in his public adult life. And I'm going to do it quickly because God knows these uh, men um, are worthless human beings and should not be treated like legends. Instead, they should be treated like the vermin that they are. So, according to all of my sources, Herbert Richard Baumeister was born on April 7th, 1947 in Indianapolis, Indiana. He was the oldest of four children to to a father named Herbert, uh, who was an anesthesiologist. I'm surprised that I managed to do that on the second try. And a mother named Elizabeth, which, given the time period, it should shock nobody that she was a stay-at-home mom. 
his childhood like was relatively normal he doesn't have like the typical um i shouldn't say typical but you know like the serial killer um most some serial killers have like a traumatic experience that happens in their lives and it like screws them over forever and instead of getting help they kill people um so herb never had any of that in fact nothing was weird until he got to his pre preteen and teenage years where kind of like everything went downhill so according to the authors rich Epset and robert graves of the novel the horrors of fox hollow farm unraveling the history and hauntings of a serial killer's home i suggest you go read it i read it um on audible so i guess i listened to it on audible um and it's like a four hour listen it's really cool uh rich Epset goes over the crimes and um robert graves actually lives at the home currently that this all took place and so he he's the one who talks about the hauntings which i think is really neat um but regardless herb was in elementary school when he had placed a dead bird on his teacher's desk it is not known if he had killed the bird or if he had found it um just to see how she would react so not only this but he would also constantly question his classmates about what they think it would be like to drink their own piss um and according to an article done by medium the boy had taken it far enough that he was caught peeing on the teacher's desk i'm sorry but as if i was that teacher i would have resigned right then and there i would have been like mm, no kiss kid is peeing on my in on my desk gross so the book also mentions that the teachers rightfully concerned about his behavior had gone to his parents the older baumeister father had his son psychologically tested where it was revealed that there was evidence of more than one personality it is not confirmed that he had more than one personality but there was slight evidence um because i i mentioned that distinction because a lot of serial killers will try and use that in court and be like oh, I have a second personality that just, like, has all my bad stuff and, um, and, you know, is responsible for all these murders, but the other side of me is the good side of me, and I think that really just puts a bad rap on people with, uh, dissociative, dissociative identity disorder, um, and so I just wanted to put that out there that, like, there was evidence, but, it's not completely certain um but it was entirely like obvious he had schizophrenia according to this doctor he had schizophrenia so while it appeared that his parents knew of his mental state relatively early on it is mid 50s at this point so obviously they don't give shit about mental health they don't give a shit about medication nothing they don't even know what schizophrenia is because keep in mind at this point in time they were locking disabled people up in um psychiatric hospitals and treating them like garbage and as a disabled person myself that kills me a little bit inside whenever i do some research about that so 
um regardless um he had gone through like that was like the only thing he made it through high school without a fuss never over overachieving never underachieving just simply average and he was just there you know just floating through life day by day after he graduated high school however he got into indiana university and get this his declared major was anatomy which knowing the fact that he strangles his victims later is scary. Um, So claiming that he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. This is where he met uh, his soon-to-be wife, Julie, as they were both a part of the Young Republicans group at the university, um, according to the Medium article, as well as according to a Crime Junkie podcast episode. Um, So they were like, uber conservative which like do what you gotta do i guess that's that's not the point um but it'll kind of come into play in the future when julie doesn't like believe that her husband might be gay um because of the uber conservativeness of them um But regardless, that's why I mentioned the Young Republicans group right now, according to the Median article I mentioned earlier. So, in 1967, Herb had dropped out of university where he began working for the Indianapolis Star newspaper. It was like one of the most popular Indianapolis newspapers out there. Um, In 1971, Herb and Julie, who was now working as an English teacher, um, had gotten married. in 1972, Herb had spent a total of two months in a psychiatric hospital due to a, quote, emotional breakdown, end quote. I only put quotes around it because it is not entirely certain why he ended up in the psychiatric hospital. There's some belief that he, quote, had an emotional breakdown over a car part, uh, end quote, because he was really into, um, he was really into cars at the time. Um, and so he couldn't find a car part and he couldn't fix a car. Um, and so they thought like that might've sent him into an episode. Um, there's also some theory about whether or not he was going through a depressive episode at the time. Regardless, his father had him committed. Um, is it committed? His father put him in a psychiatric hospital. Let's just say that. Um, so that's why the only reason why I say emotional breakdown with quotes, because while that is a serious thing that can happen, um, and you know, you have every right to go to a psychiatric hospital because of that. I just put that in quotes because it's like theorized. So he then took a job at the Indian app, India, Indian. Oh my goodness. Indiana Bureau of Motor Vehicles um, after he got out of the psychiatric hospital where he began to act very strangely. According to the book I mentioned earlier, Herb sent out Christmas cards to his co-workers with him and another man dressed in drag. There's nothing wrong with that, mind you, but given the fact that he was uber conservative and um, all of a sudden, you know, dressing in drag and stuff like that, that, that kind of like, it's little weird but like not like it just kind of made him go ding like little tiny red something something's going on little check mark um but that um wasn't even the cherry on top the cherry on top was the fact that um 
he had peed on a letter addressed to the governor of Indiana for an unknown reason. So clearly this man is mentally ill. Um, Unsurprisingly, he had lost his job. In 1979, he had a daughter, which was quickly followed by a son in 1981 and another daughter in 1984. I'm not going to say their names because I'm not sure how close they are to this case, and I feel like their names have already been dragged through the mud enough. Um, And they were all, like, minors at the time of this happening, and I just don't know you know there's there's a lot of trauma with that uh because the families if they know nothing about what's going on are also victims in their own right so i just don't want to you know out them or anything like that if they're you know living their lives but that's what you need to know there are three kids right so it is from here that he bounced around from job to job never really finding anything he even ended up staying home as a stay-at-home dad for a short stint in 19, um, for a little while. I almost, I skipped some part, um, when Julie had gone back to work as a full-time teacher, because while, while, uh, he was at work, she was at home, and so they just switched. So, uh, it was in 1988, uh, they had got a $4,000 loan from his mother, and start- he started his own thrift store called Sabalon. This thrift store would become very popular in the next couple of years in Indiana. Um, I want to say there was a total of three um, in the whole state. So, it was in 1991, uh, they earned enough money to own the 11,000 square foot home on the 18 acres of Fox Hollow Farms. This house was about $1 million then, and as of 2021, the house is valued at nearly $3 million. So, with that, I'm going to lead into the uh, victim that finally brought all of these cases to the forefront. His name was Roger Allen Goodlett. Alright, so, because these stories involve gay men in the Midwest during the 90s, fresh off of the AIDS epidemic and literally calling it the quote gay cancer um it should come as no surprise that there's little information about the victims themselves not involving the crime uh regardless I will try my best to tell you about the men who were killed um according to an archived article by the no- uh Noblesville Ledger, a newspaper in Indiana, Roger Allen Goodlow was born on July 30th, 1960. He graduated from Cardinal Ritter High School in 1978. He would later attend uh, Vicennes, I think is how I say it, University and the Pontiac Business Institute. Despite the uneasy history of LGBTQ peoples and churches, Roger Allen Goodlett was a regular attendee of the St. Andrew uh, Lutheran Church 
uh, he had a brother and sister. I know their names, but I'm not going to say them because I don't know if they want their names to be said. Um, I don't know if he was the oldest. I don't know if he was the youngest. I don't know if he was the middle child um, because the obituary was short and it was sad how short it was. So this is all I could gather about him. And sadly, at 33 years old, he would be found at Fox Hollow Farm uh, with many others, most of them remaining unidentified. Goodlight was last seen at a popular gay bar. I don't know the name of this gay bar. I just know that it's a popular gay bar. So whenever I bring up gay bar, um, it's the same one. Um, But he was never seen again. In a podcast episode done by Crime Junkie, they explained that at this point in time, it was customary to wait 30 days before starting an investigation uh, when dealing with a missing person. That seems ridiculous, but the hosts wonder if maybe it's because Roger was a 33-year-old man at this point, and if you add on top of the fact that he is gay, they're not really taking the case seriously. So Goodlett's mother, as well as his partner, decide to hire a private investigator named uh, Virgil because of their because of the police not taking it seriously. So Virgil um, is actually a retired police or retired retired detective. Um, and so he's been working as a PI um, for the last couple of years. After a few days of the investigation, Virgil gets another call from another worried family with a gay son who's gone missing. Given that the similarities didn't just end with their sexuality, as the son was a, of equal height, same hair color, had worked a similar job to Roger, and was last seen at the gay bar, Virgil takes the case, right? So he adds that case to the Roger one. It is here that he assembles a small team that he goes uh, that all go out and tries to get any information from not just the gay bar, but the other gay bars um, in town. Their legwork starts to pay off, uh, even if it is just a small tip. Eyewitnesses would claim that they saw Roger get into a blue car with an Ohio license plate in front of the library downtown, not very far from the bar. After weeks of nothing, Virgil gets yet another call, this time from a gay magazine, claiming that these two men were not the only ones. Instead, there were many more. Crime junkie host Ashley Flowers and Britt theorize that uh, that due to the police not taking it seriously, maybe the families had reached out to the media in order to draw attention to the situation, as well as like let other people in the LGBTQ plus community, like about the, um, because it wasn't a very popular uh, magazine that focused on you know, gay news and stuff like that and queer news. So it was just like something, you know, just like, hey, be careful, like something's going on and these men are missing. Even if they don't get anything from it, at least they can warn other people. So it was clear to Virgil that he was dealing with a serial killer, right? It is at this point that it, the finally, after the 30-day waiting period was over, that the police started their own investigation. What Virgil, as well as the other families, didn't know um, was that their sons um, had been part of the eight men who had gone missing in the span of two years. 
So keep in mind, they are waiting 30 days for every victim that they hear about who's a gay man. And they know that they are one of the eight men who have gone missing in the span of two years. Like, that is a bit ridiculous. I feel I feel like after, like, I don't know, two? Two, at the very least, I would be like, oh, maybe these are connected. Um, but they, um, they have no leads because they waited 30 days. Uh, and so they have to wait um, on one of these eight men to show up or another man go missing. So put another man in danger. Wonderful. And that's when they get a call from a guy named Tony Harris. And Tony Harris has one wild story. So, Tony's called to the police. Tony had gone to that very same gay bar simply to have fun. Uh, here is where he meets a man known to him as Brian Smart, but is actually Herb Baumeister. Um, at the bar, they're chatting, they're having fun, they're getting a little flirty, they're ordering each other drinks, and so on and so forth. And that's when, quote-unquote, Brian tells Tony, Hey, do you want to come back to my place? I've got a pool. And, you know, they're going to go back and do what, you know, grown adults do. Um, yeah. They go and have... they. He alludes to the fact that, like, hey, we should go bang. Um, so, Tony agrees. And the two hop into Brian's car. A blue car. Uh, with Ohio license plates. Once there, Brian makes Tony a cocktail, but Tony politely declines. Shocked a little bit by Tony's rejection of the drink, Brian excuses himself to go to the bathroom. That drink was totally spiked. Um, but when Brian comes back, according to Tony, he is much more loose and laid back. Tony thinks he might be on drugs at this point, uh, just to like loosen himself up. Taking note of this, but not really seeing it as a full-on red flag yet, which I'm like, how do you not? Um, the two go into the room where the pool is, and get this, there are so many mannequins dressed up ar around the pool in different positions and different clothing. Um, see, this is where I would have bolted. Um, right then and there, uh, like, mannequins are worse than dolls. Like, nope, nope, nope. If you listen to my Disney episode, you know I freaking hate dolls. So it just, it, 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 he just, Tony simply takes this and is like, you know what? This is just her being her. Um, because Brian, or not her being her, Brian being Brian. Because Brian claims that um, he likes to stage the mannequins as if they were having a party. And they were his friends because he was lonely and he had this big house all by himself. How Tony didn't run at this point is shocking to me. So while they're swimming like a creep, Brian brings up autoerotic asphyxiation, which is essentially where you choke yourself to the point of passing out for a better orgasm. Um, I hate that I had to look this up for this episode because I didn't know what that was. Um, and I hate it. I knew it was something to do like kinky because erotic um 
but I didn't know it was to this extent. Um, if this is new information for you, just be happy that you didn't have to look it up, because uh, I could have left it at that, but you're welcome. So Brian then asks if Tony had ever done something like this. Tony says no. And so then Brian asks if he could wrap a pool hose around Tony's neck so Tony could have a better orgasm. In the midst of like getting hot and heavy, and Tony realizes that Brian's grip on the hose is getting tighter and tighter. And he's going like, and he thinks like he's, he's gonna die here. Uh, Tony does about the only smart thing he's done so far and pretends to pass out. And Brian lets up. When Tony opens his eyes, Brian tries to play it off as if that's how it was supposed to go and not, oh, you're alive, like, you were supposed to die. Um, Luckily, Tony makes it out of there alive, and Tony calls the police. Sure that this had something to do with the gay men who had gone missing in in Indianapolis. so the police tried to find anything owned by a quote brian smart that matched tony's description but obviously this was an alias as aside from the part um and aside from the from part of a sign that tony saw that said farms and the fact that like they had a winding driveway it was on a big farm and um the house had a pool there was really nothing else that the police had because it was dark outside. Um, and so Tony was like, look, this is the case. Um, so Herb had tried to keep reaching out to Tony. And so the police had even set up a meetup with him, but he was a no show. So back to the drawing board, it was. Here is when the investigation takes a full on swing. For those who are familiar with true crime cases, it is frustrating to hear when police departments don't work together, even when the cases are clearly connected due to just pure pride and wanting to seem like the better police force, aka a bunch of men's egos getting in the way and being like, I'm alpha male, I'm alpha male, when really it just doesn't look like that at all. So, in this case, however... Uh, the Indianapolis police actually reach out to the Ohio police and they're like, hey, this is the only lead we have. This guy who has been seen in the many disappearings of these men has an Ohio license plate. Can you help us at all? Um, so Ohio actually like adds on a whole new load of information. According to the Crime Junkie episode I mentioned earlier, Ohio had been experiencing a sting of murdered men, a string, no sting, of murdered men on the highway, on Highway I-70. Get this, they were all younger men and they had all been strangled and they were all gay. So, hello. Uh, this had been going on once in 85, once in 86, once in 89, and once in 90. Um, 
So keep in mind, it's 1993 at this point in time, and you don't just decide to start killing man, uh, men randomly one day. Um, and so, even, even more so, uh, all the men that were killed on I-70 were all tracked back to the, fa- like, the famous gay bar in Indianapolis. Um, so clearly like these two cases were connected they just needed evidence right uh they theorized that um with the fact they couldn't find the bodies he was no longer a state away it was somewhere more close especially now that he was becoming more confident had they possibly brought up like well if you know he he does live on a big farm like maybe it's now he has all this room that he didn't have before, so he was dumping the bodies a state away in an attempt to, like, you know, cross state lines, the police won't talk to each other, so on and so forth, because it's happened many times before, like, all over the place, so it's just, like, it was a tactic on his part, and but now he has, and given the fact that the bodies aren't showing up, clearly he has a way to get rid of them and for them to be never found again. So they're starting to wonder if how many bodies are on his property, on his farm, you know. Um, so with that, though, he, he was escalating still with the time in between the victims, and so on and so forth and they had very little leads at this point still so the police from all over indiana decide to have a meeting with one another where indianapolis police department asks if asks if they knew a house on a big property with a pool um and it had a winding you know a winding driveway and it had something farms in it hoping against all hope that the other police departments might have heard something like this luckily and this is the only time the hamilton police becomes useful in this case and i will get into it believe me um they recognize this description so they send out some officers to scout out a place called fox hollow farms Uh, where we obviously know that no quote-unquote Brian owned this place, rather that it was owned by Herb and Julie Baumeister. But the house was outside of their jurisdiction, and so they went to the judge in Hamilton asking for the search warrant. Right? They were like, uh, he's been spotted a couple times and stuff. Uh, the judge is a plain, is a pain in the ass, and I'm gonna tell you why. So, because the judge explains that they aren't getting a warrant based on some, in his words, unreliable witness, um, Tony went to the house. That's not an unreliable witness. He went inside the house. But regardless, um, the judge gives them the usual spiel that Herb is a businessman and a, quote, upstanding member of fucking society, end quote, except without the fucking, I'm just, I'm just sick of hearing that excuse. So obviously he wouldn't do this. It's later that a man from the same gay bar sees this car and sees Herb, uh, taking down the description of her, like, noticing the car, the license plate was an ohio license plate and given that herb matched the description that was recently set out 
Um, this man had the wherewithal and was like, I'm just going to write this little thing down and I'm going to write his license place down. Thank goodness for this man. Sadly, we, we don't ever know his name. I think he called into the police, um, you know, anonymously. Um, but he had called in and been like, Hey, I saw this guy with Ohio license plates in a blue car and he matches the description. Here's his license uh, license number, right? Um, and so they went again. The Indianapolis Police Department went to the judge in Hamilton County and was like, hey, can we get a warrant now? We've got Tony confirming that Herb looks like the man that he went home with and we've got somebody who took down the number of Herb's freaking Herb's license plate number. And he's got a freaking blue car and it's got Ohio license plates. Like, can we go and get him now? Um, the judge still refused a warrant, you guys. Um, so with nothing else to do, the police dig into his past, and that's where they learn everything I told you in the beginning. Uh, but they noticed one thing. When they bought the estate, like when he had bought the estate, suddenly bodies stopped showing up in Ohio. They were right in his assumption, in their assumption that Herb had started to bury the bodies on the 18 acres of land he now owned. So... With only being faced with the fact that they would have to somehow get Herb to cooperate, um, they had to confront Herb at one of his stores. But he denies any involvement, obviously. But according to reports, as they were questioning him, he had been, like, getting increasingly worked up because, um, literally to the point where the vein in his neck was throbbing like it was pulsing and his jaw was tight like it was he was clearly hiding something um so yeah without his cooperation and without a warrant from the stupid judge they just had to wait uh three months go by when the cops get wind of julie and herb's divorce herb had moved out meaning julie can let them in Except when the police tell her all this, Julie doesn't believe it simply and t- simply tells them to leave. Because, again, at this point in time, she thinks her husband is straight, um, which within the 20 years of their marriage, they had only had sex six times, and it was to conceive their children. Um, but she believed that he was straight, he was in this marriage, and he was uber-conservative. Right? So, like, obviously she's thinking, like, you guys got the wrong guy, like, wrong person, um, obviously, though, if your estranged husband is being accused of murder, uh, that is gonna stick in your brain for a little bit, and so, Julie thinks back on any strange incidences that may have happened on the farm, let me tell you, um, she thinks about the time that, according to all of my sources, Herb and Julie's 13-year-old son named Eric found a skull on the property merely a few months before. Um, he had used a stick to pick it up because he's 13 years old and ran around with it in an attempt to scare his sisters. When Drew- Julie had noticed what her son was doing, she had screamed at him and 
to stop and demanded him to take her to where he had found the skull. Pretty reasonable, in my opinion. Um, when Eric took his mother to where he had found the school, skull, Julie was horrified to find that uh, it wasn't the only part of the body that was around. In fact, as she looked around, she was almost certain that the bones that were around the skull could have completed a nearly perfect human skeleton. Julie attempted to confront Herb about this issue uh, when he got home from work, but he had uh, claimed that it was his father's anatomy skeleton, that it like was normally in the garage, but somehow made it out into the woods onto the property. I assume that this was one of those times where like you hear a lot of the time like serial killers partners, they just hope that their husband, their wife is telling the truth because if not, they have to face the fact that you know, they might, the person that they loved might have killed somebody. Um, so Julie was okay with that answer, but now the cops are coming to her door and she just had to wonder. So, the victims. Sadly, at this point, at this time period, these men's sexualities and so on, many of the details about these men are lost to time or behind a ridiculous paywall for basic information. Uh, the only place that I could find was Ancestry.com, and they wanted me to pay 24 bucks uh, a month for their subscription, so I simply cannot afford that. As recently as last December, two bodies were able to be given to their family members, identified and everything, but that is the only information I could find. I don't know their names. Um, which, one of the victim's mothers was terminally ill at the time. Um, which, yeah, it, I would just, you know, I would, it kind of makes sense that their names aren't you know, brought up anymore. But these were the names that I could find. John Johnny Bear, born October 14th, 1972, and died on May 23rd, 1993, at 20 years old. Jeffrey Allen, also goes by Jeff Jones, born February 9th, 1962, and died on July 7th, 1993, at 31 years old. Richard Douglas Hamilton Jr., born on May 5th, 1973, and died on July 31st, 1993, at the age of 20 years old. Manuel M. Resendez, born on September 12th, 1961, and died on August 7th, 1993, at 31 years old. Alan Wayne Browsard, I believe is how you say it, was born on April 15th, 1966, and died on June 4th, 1994, at 28 years old. There are more. So, aside from Roger, um, Roger that I had mentioned earlier, um, there's two more. So, Michael Frederick Mike Kern was born on the 25th of February, 
1949 and died at some point in 1995 at the age of 45 or 46. It wasn't, you know, they weren't able to pinpoint the exact day. Believed to be one of his last victim and many, um, victims, many reports actually ended up spelling his surname wrong, which I believe is ridiculous. You should be able to, at the very least, spell a victim's name correctly. Uh, Steve Sperlin Hale was born on November 14th, 1967, and died on September 14th, 1996, at the age of 28. All of this information can be found at findagrave.com, and this was the only place that I could find most of the information um, about these men, which is just sad. So, with that, let's try and cheer up for the outro, but uh, keep their hearts, keep their names in your hearts. Um, this, This one was a difficult case for me. And with that, folks, I've had myself a little bit of a breather. Um, That is the end of today's episode of There's Too Much to Think. I hope you enjoyed. Um, Like I said, this is part one. I will be talking about the crimes. Like I said, crimes in this one. And then in the next one, I will be talking about the hauntings that apparently have taken place um, on this property. So... For, like, a more upbeat, I suppose, but, you know, I really hope it was none of these men are actually, like, experiencing this and this is just, like, a memory implant because the fact that they are also suffering in death is a sad one. But I understand that spooky is a lot more better than (laughs) this, so I want to be able to provide that for you, so I will be talking about the hauntings in the next episode. For now, um, please, you know, look at the question down below or the poll or whatever, whatever suits you, um, or I guess I should say whatever suits me, um, whatever I decide, you know, um, check out the sources down below. I will say that a lot of the sources that I use today will likely be used next week's episode because, you know, it just makes sense. I was compiling all of this information at once. And then when I finally got to like page seven, I said, I got to give my voice a break after an hour. Like, I'm sure you can already tell my voice is raspy. Um, But yeah, so share this with your friends, you know, leave. I answer to the question, share it online, do what you got to do. Um, And yeah, I hope you have a wonderful Friday. I hope you have a wonderful week. Uh, Tell your loved ones you love them. And uh, yeah, I hope y'all have a wonderful time. Bye-bye.